Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Everyone's always saying, uh, why can't you get more Scottish accents on the weeds? Uh, So I was really excited to uh, be able to record this episode with Emma Ashford from the Cato Institute. She does foreign policy there, uh, sort of big think stuff. Uh, We had a discussion. It was incredibly wide ranging, like every topic under the sun, China, the Middle East, the defense budget, uh, all around the world. Um, I I think really, really interesting stuff. Uh, So here we go. Check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today is Emma Ashford. She is a research fellow in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute, um, which, you know, you guys probably best know uh, as a as a libertarian think tank uh, deregulating everything. Um, but I have always loved Cato's work on uh, defense and foreign policy issues. I think it's super interesting, a perspective that is not heard enough here in Washington. I'm uh, really glad to have you. Yeah, great to be here. Okay, so I'm going to start with like just like a super easy question, which is like, what what's what's wrong with American foreign policy? This episode might go a little long if we, <laughs> we try and cover everything. Um, but, you know, I guess the thing that I'll start by saying is what's wrong with foreign policy is not Donald Trump, or right. at least it's not only Donald Trump. There are a lot of sort of structural factors that are changing in how America fits in the world, how we relate to other countries in terms of power and politics. Um, And all of those have been changing since the end of the Cold War. Donald Trump has come along, and yes, a lot of the things he says about foreign policy are completely nuts. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I'm going to buy Greenland tomorrow. Um, But he's much more a symptom than he is the actual disease. U.S. foreign policy has really been running on autopilot since the end of the Cold War. We engage in a lot of these military interventions. We've really prioritized the use of the military over all the other tools of foreign policy. We sort of sanction everybody without any thought for what we'll actually get for it. And we really sort of continue to act as if the the power structures that we had in 1991, when the US was definitely the biggest, most strongest, most powerful country in the world, we act like that's going to continue forever. It's not at all clear that that's really the case. And so, I mean, so so 1991, this is the Cold War ends, um, and the United States is like top dog. Like every other country is just pretty weak at that point. And now you have you know, China is much, much richer, much more economically powerful than it than it was at that time. India, uh, others like that. And then also America's Cold War allies are just like that was a long time ago, right? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, the period right after 1991, I think it was Charles Krauthammer coined the term the unipolar moment, which is the idea that that as, as realist uh, or international relations scholars would put it, that the US was the, the unipole, the one power in the system that could dominate all the others. Um, and that looks very different today. China is rising, even if it's not more powerful or richer than the US, it may be at some point in the next 20 or 30 years. European states, some of our allies, countries like Germany, they're rising at least economically, if not militarily. And then we have a lot of these other states like Russia, which is really a declining power, but it is at the very least trying to challenge some of the things that the US has been pushing since the end of the Cold War. So we continue to pursue the same policies we have been, but the world looks different. So something that that I hear from a lot of people, from foreign policy people is that Trump is like is an isolationist, that he has abandoned our alliances and our global leadership. Uh, I, I saw there was like a piece in Slate th- the other day, um, or, or maybe this morning, this is, I think, typical of this. It like says Japan and South Korea are in some fight with each other. And this is what happens when America doesn't do its responsibilities. Yeah, so people have been saying this since back in the campaign about Trump, that he's an isolationist or perhaps worse, you know, that he is a realist or he's a restrainer on foreign policy, which are terms of fairly specific meaning. Um, And it's not really true. So Trump says the occasional thing that does fit into that mold. So, for example, he is trying to get U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. Not clear if he's actually going to do it, but the attempt to do it would fit in that mold to mm-hmm. some extent. Um, and, you know, during the campaign, he said, hey, we're not going to fight any more stupid wars like Iraq. That would fit in that mold. But people always forget the second part of it, which is that he says the exact opposite whenever he feels like it. So we're going to go out there and we're going to smash ISIS. We're going to smash anyone that disagrees with us. We're going to wage a trade war with China. We're mm-hmm. going to, um, you know, just engage in a lot of sanctions against, um, you know, countries like Venezuela. We're going to withdraw from the JCPOA. None of these are things that realists restrainers. And again, I really hesitate to use that word isolationist because I think it's pretty meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, but realist or restrainers wouldn't advocate those things at all. So Trump is really inconsistent more than anything So, else. So restrainer, is that is that the, the view you would associate with? Realist, I prefer realist, uh, okay. mostly because restrainer is a pretty awful term. But wh- whatever term you're using for it, it's a view that um, certainly me and most of my colleagues at the Cato Institute tend to belong to, um, realists in the academy tend to belong to, but basically people that say that the U.S. Um, focuses way too much on the military and our engagement with the world, that we should try and focus a little more on diplomacy and trade and immigration and all those other ways of engaging with the world that don't involve basically beating people with pointy sticks. Mm-hmm. But I mean, also, I, I mean, the I, I guess the word restraint does come up in this, though, for I think some good reason, right? I mean, part of the idea is just that you should should like let more stuff go, right? Yeah. So um, so the people that are opposed to this, um, which has been the, the, the bipartisan consensus since the end of the Cold War, whether you call it liberal internationalism or primacy or neoconservatism, basically whatever flavor of it you want to you wanna look at, they argue that the U.S. should be everywhere, involved in every problem because only the U.S. can help to solve those problems. And if we're not there, other countries might make it worse and we'll get more conflict. Um, personally, I think that the last 25 years have sort of proven just through example that that is not the case. But that is the basic argument between those two schools of thought. Right, so this was like Madeleine Albright, right? She used the slogan that the United States is the indispensable nation. 
right? And then there's a lot of disagreement within the consensus as to like what exactly we should do. But the presumption is that if there's a significant problem, the United States should be involved, that it's 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 always better to be doing something. Yeah. Um, and you can have sort of two responses to that. And one one argument is basically just to say, well, maybe the U.S. should be involved because we do have a major global role, but we're getting involved in the wrong ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a pretty fair argument, you know, that we are far too often involved directly rather than working through other countries. Um, but then there's the, the other argument, which is basically that a lot of these situations, we don't really have the knowledge to actually help other countries overcome them. Sometimes by getting involved, we're making it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the example, I, I know it gets rolled out all the time, but the example I really like here is um, the U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen. Mm-hmm. that's still ongoing. If we weren't supporting the Saudis in that, that war would probably have ended a couple of years ago. And so that's one of those cases where we say, oh, we're there to prevent conflict but we're probably actually causing the conflict. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, I think the the sort of natural response to this, though, is that these problems do, like, come back to, to haunt us, right? So, I mean, y- you mentioned Afghanistan, where, you know, President Trump maybe wants to, to take troops out, and a lot of the Democrats are saying they want to do this. And the Obama administration also always said this is like what they wanted to do. And it seemed like the the sort of seesaw was, well, if you leave Afghanistan and then something bad happens, you're going to be right back in there. I think there is something to this argument, right? Um, particularly if you look at the Obama administration's um, decision to withdraw from Iraq and then the rise of ISIS. So, so there is something to this that when the U.S. withdraws from these conflicts, things might get worse. Mm-hmm. Um The counterpoint, though, is are we going to stay forever? Um, And so to people who basically say that the withdrawal decision is the problem, I tend to say, well, actually, the original intervention is far more the problem. And now we're at a point where we can't undo that. We have to think about whether it really serves American interests to be there in the long run. Um, And in that, I find a lot of sort of comfort or support from the fact that there is very little evidence that the so-called safe haven idea about terrorists really exists. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a myth that the idea that places like Afghanistan are hosts for terrorists who then come and strike the U.S. Even the 9-11 attacks were actually mostly planned in Germany. They weren't planned in Afghanistan at all. Um, And scholarly work has found that that's pretty much the case always. These things tend to be planned in developed countries. Mm -hmm. So... I, I, I'm pretty skeptical about the idea that what we're actually doing in Afghanistan is preventing that kind of attack. Right. So so the point here would be that, like, you don't need, like, a country to have a terrorist attack. You can do that in somebody's living room. No, that's exactly the point. You, you don't. Um, what you need to fight it, um, you know, is not an army. You don't need an invasion. You don't need a, a counterinsurgency campaign in Afghanistan. What you need is intelligence and policing to try and prevent those attacks from happening. So given that, I mean, as far as I can tell, right, uh, Trump and Obama, not a ton of agreement about things. But this, like, Afghanistan seems like a question where on some level their hearts were both in the same place and the place was we should try to get troops out of Afghanistan. And I mean, in a simple view, it's like, well, you're the president. Like, why don't you just do it? And yet it keeps not happening. 
Well, I mean, so there's there's kind of a lot of arguments about why that happens. Um, but I think the fact that they're both saying this is reflective of a shift in public opinion mm-hmm. because the public has largely shifted over the last 15, God, 20 years now at this point um, towards saying that, you know, U.S. troops should be out of Afghanistan to saying that the invasion of Iraq was a mistake. The public's been moving towards those positions for a long time. What hasn't been moving towards those positions is mostly the people that actually work on foreign policy here in D.C. And so one of the more logical explanations, I think, for why neither Obama or Trump has really been able to withdraw is that they find it hard to get staff that actually agree with that position. And that, that I think, includes, importantly, like the, the military itself, right? I mean, the, the top brass are very resistant to this idea and it's hard. I mean, like military officers have a lot of prestige in the United States, as well as the fact that you actually need them to like carry out your your orders. And it's it's challenging to sort of do something if all the generals in the room are saying it's a terrible idea or potentially are saying to Congress it's a terrible idea or, or the press or, or anything like that. Yeah, and I, I hesitate to sort of say all the military believe this because actually if you look at polling, it's pretty broadly similar to the public. The hmm. military at large tends to be pretty much in line with the public. Um, but you're right about the top brass um, sort of believing that we should stay in Afghanistan. And you've got to remember that these are people that all built their careers around these campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. These are people that built their careers on the idea that we can do counterinsurgency mm-hmm. and, and other things like that. And so they have career incentives to avoid it. There's incentives towards group think. Um, and so th- there really is a pretty strong incentive to say, well, if we just stay a few more years, things will be better, then we can negotiate something. And the problem is that just becomes never ending. Right. I mean, and also, uh, obviously, the sort of fiscal burden of maintaining a large military is, I, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've spoken to, you know, leading military people. They're, they're not unaware that, like, this is expensive and that there is a plausible case for doing other things. But obviously, the people in charge of an organization are just never going to be that hostile to the organization having a lot of money spent on. These are also, to some extent, slightly different issues mm-hmm. um, because you're right. I mean, we are spending a lot of money and we have spent a lot of money in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, the The military budget itself is much, much bigger than that. And that's kind of a separate problem. Um, but I tend to think more about the cost in lives, right? right? Because we're we're not just talking about money. We can say, oh, it's cost us so many trillion to be in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but it's also cost us thousands and thousands of America of lives of American service members. Just this year alone, 14 people have been killed in Afghanistan. But I mean, this this actually seems like paradoxically part of the the problem, right? That you have the seriousness of the sunk costs in human life, I think creates an organizational disincentive to say, well, and it didn't work out. I mean, it's certainly a, it's certainly a good argument, right? You're dishonoring their memory if you leave now. Um, but the, the corollary to that is, well, maybe if they're not dying for something that's actually important, that's something we should all be acknowledging and recognizing before more people die for it. With that, let's take a break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. 
We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, so I, I think a shared premise of this, right, is it's it's better to not get into a war that it's then going to be hard to get out of. But what do you need to do to, to do that, right? I mean, because nobody, like, the you never have a president who's like, what I want to do is get into a lot of pointless wars. And yet somehow it seems to happen. You know, there's a there's a bias for action, not mm-hmm. just um, not just among leaders, among people in in general. It's uh, humans tend to vote for action over inaction, whatever possible, and that manifests in foreign policy in some pretty awful ways. You know, there's a tendency to intervene when we see that something is bad, and I think that's where a lot of the the sort of call the minor interventions that we're engaged with come from, you know, that we have several hundred troops in Cameroon or Niger or, you know, these places that just nobody knows we're even fighting. So I, I think there is a psychological or human nature tendency to intervene in those cases. And and that's um, that's why people describe themselves as restrainers, because it is about showing self-restraint. Mm-hmm. It's about thinking through not just the first order effects of what you're doing in foreign policy. It's about thinking about what that's going to mean five years down the road. And that's very difficult, I think, for politicians to do in the moment. And and what do you think about the the media in this? I mean, that's, that's where I work. And it, it's, just, it's something I noticed that during the sort of high tide of the Syrian civil war. I mean, it's good to cover foreign events, but sometimes, you know, like there can be civil conflicts often in Africa that like don't get in the news a lot. But then the Syrian civil war was in the news a lot, seemingly because there was a presumption that the United States should be doing something about it, right? It was like, it was a story that was in our media because it was in some sense a story about us. Right. And and that I know is very challenging on 
decision makers, right? Like once that consensus gets built, like terrible things are happening. Like, what are you going to do about it? And nobody wants to stand up there and be like, I'm not doing anything. It's, it's true about the media. So if you look at two examples, right, look at Barack Obama, and then he decided not to intervene in Syria. And he got slammed in the media for that decision for what I think in retrospect was actually the right decision. It really was. Then Donald Trump, a number of years later, in response to a chemical weapons attack, he did actually intervene in Syria. He launched a bunch of cruise missiles into Syria. It had no effect. It didn't change anything. Nothing was better because he did that. But the media praised it effusively. I mean, to to some extent, almost really disturbing how much they praised his use of of force in that mm-hmm. case. Um, but if you just look at the two from more of a strategic point of view, it was Obama that made the right decision there, even though he got slammed for it. Right. And then Obama th- did the the sort of flip side of that was, was did intervene in Libya fairly forcefully. It seemed like in the moment that kind of got the media off his back because it, it like, quote unquote, worked. And then the whole aftermath of that does not get that much coverage anymore. Yeah, and even where the aftermath does get coverage, so the refugee crisis um, in Europe that was driven to to some extent by the Libyan civil war, that got attention, but the media almost never highlighted that it was in part caused by the intervention. So so there is kind of a pernicious cycle there um, that policymakers, I think, have to be very strong to stand up to. It's very difficult for them to do. I'm sympathetic to that problem. Right. And I mean, I guess what, what, what happened in Libya for you know, this we don't we don't do a lot of farm policy here on the podcast. So it's worth worth getting into is, you know, Gaddafi was going to put down rebellion uh, very violently, very brutally, I guess. Um, the US and other NATO forces came in, intervened, stopped him. He was overthrown. Uh, but then, as is often the case in these situations, it didn't just become a sort of happy, stable, long-term aftermath, right? There's just been couple continuing rounds of civil war and and all kinds of problems that that the west is now like not actually solving yeah, Libya is basically still in a civil war that really hasn't ended pretty much since 2011. Um, and there's kind of a bigger story here too, right? Because it's not just what happened on the ground in Libya. Um, it's the fact that the US went to the United Nations Security Council. We got a resolution saying that we could protect the people in, it was in Benghazi, was, was the town that was under threat, um, and that we could intervene to do it. And the Chinese and the Russians actually abstained. And we mm-hmm. got that resolution. And then at some point, the mission transitioned into we can only save those people if we overthrow Gaddafi. Um, And this is actually in the long run hurt our relations with both China and Russia who no longer trust us when we say that we're actually just trying to do something humanitarian. I also always wonder, I mean, this is a, I feel like a take that's that's too too hot for a lot of of foreign policy think tanks. But I wonder about the expectations this kind of thing creates in other places, right? That, that you know, when you look at what has played out in Syria over the years, right? And it's, it's an incredible tragedy, right? But did we in Libya, I mean, not just Libya alone, but, but over the years create the presumption that if you set yourself up to be slaughtered, that that is going to prompt a rescue that you wouldn't otherwise get 
from your tough internal political problems. Yeah. In fact, Alan Cooperman of the University of Texas has actually done some research on this, and he found that that moral hazard problem actually does exist. There is, in fact, some evidence that Syrian rebels thought that the US would intervene if they stood up to Assad. And then we didn't, which is in many ways worse than intervening in the first place. We basically encouraged those people to rise up, and then we didn't come and help them, and they ended up getting slaughtered. So the moral hazard problem, I think, is a big one because even if you think the US should engage in interventions, you presumably don't think we should do an intervention everywhere. So I don't understand how you solve that problem if and when you start intervening. Right. And and I feel like it's it's difficult to look at 25 years of American military interventions and say exactly what was going on, right? I mean, I mean like you could write a book about it, but you couldn't write a, like one paragraph summary, right? There's no, even people talk about like this doctrine or that doctrine, but there's no really clear through line between Kosovo and Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, but not Syria. You know, like, like to explain like exactly what's, what's happening, officials are responding both to the objective facts, but also to you know, like politics and whatever else. I mean, I think sometimes it's hard to explain why this intervention and not that intervention. But I I would say I disagree a little. I do think there is a through line basically Mm -hmm. going back to 91, which is America feeling like we have to intervene, that it has to be us, that it can't be a third-party negotiated solution, that it probably has to be a military solution, and that if someone somewhere around the world is is hurting and if it makes enough media attention, we have to be the ones to go and help them. And I do feel like that has been a very prevalent viewpoint here in D.C. for many years. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I mean, I, I guess I, I agree with that. But I mean, how you can see people getting, I don't know exactly what to put it, like tripped up, right? You're the Venezuelan opposition. And you would like Maduro to not be running Venezuela because he's, in fact, terrible. And you have seen that the United States has sometimes, like, helped out U.S.-friendly opposition movements. But it's not, like, I'm not sure even, like, what I would say as to exactly under what circumstances we do that and don't do that, how you would prevail, how you would tell if you are taking risks that are not going to pay off. And it's in some ways, I don't want to say it's worse, but it's it's part of the problem, I think, with the impulse to intervene is that you 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 can't really be fully credible one way or the other. You know, I think the, the Hong Kong situation that's ongoing actually provides a really good example here mm. because this is an example where we can say all the rhetorical stuff that we want. And we should. We should criticize it. We should criticize mm-hmm. it if the Chinese crack down. But we we all know, you know, even, even I think Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham, I think they know that we can't do anything militarily about China going in and crushing something in Hong Kong. It's just not possible for us to do that. That's unrealistic. And so that brings I think, into fairly stark relief, the fact that sometimes when it is possible, that rhetoric just drives us further down the road towards intervention because we say, oh, well, we have to go and protect people. We are responsible for them. Um, And so in situations where we might be able to do something, I think there is that inclination to intervene. Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating example, right? Because there's something of a, it's sort of a relief. Right, psychologically, that you know we cannot stop the Chinese government from forcefully stamping out protests in Hong Kong, 
So you can just say what like people would like to say, which is that like this is really bad, that freedom and democracy are good, that it would be really wrong to like do bad things to these people, that we are on the side of the protesters, because it's clear that, you know, I don't want to say literally nothing will be done on their behalf, but there's very little that that actually could be done, whereas there's a lot we could do in Venezuela, and that it creates like a weird situation, I think, where like you don't want to be saying like, oh, this is fine because it isn't. Well, so as a, a realist, uh, you know, the, the approach that we're taking to Hong Kong is the approach I would like us to see taking in more places, which is, as you say, condemning it, standing up for freedom and democracy, you know, maybe some sanctions, things things that we can do that, you know, aren't particularly costly, definitely don't involve the military. The problem is in a lot of situations that starts to become a slippery slope towards intervention. That's great because I wanted to talk about slippery slopes. So let's take a second break and, and let's do that. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. So I think about this slippery slope thing all the time in the Iran discourse that we have. But I mean, I I think that like the classic Iran thing will be somebody from the more hawkish side will say uh, it's totally unacceptable for the Iranians to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D. And that's why we can't have like any kind of agreement with them. And also we need to not let them buy any airplane parts. And then somebody else is going to be like, you're trying to start a war. And they're like, what? No war. We're just talking about airplane parts here. The problem is, is that if you start saying, like, we're going to use coercion and we're absolutely determined, then, like, ultimately you have to do something. Yeah, I think the Iran situation has been really instructive. Um, if, if you're worried about sort of people that are very uber hawkish about these things, Iran is actually a case where they have got their way at every step of this um, issue under the Trump administration. We withdrew from the JCPOA. We put on maximum sanctions. We forced other countries to adhere to them. Now we're stepping up our military presence in the region. And if you look at the rhetoric of what those people are saying, what people say the Foundation for Defense of Democracies are saying, 
Um, the rhetoric changes from, well, this will force Iran to come to the negotiating table, this will force them to capitulate, to, well, the fact that they're standing up to us, you know, we can't take that, we're going to have to be stronger about it. And then eventually you get down to them, maybe it's about military options. And so even, I think a lot of these arguments up front are sometimes made in bad faith. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's something I don't attribute to a lot of people. But um, in, in the context of Iran, I think it's really true that a lot of these people are making very bad faith arguments about we want to negotiate, we want better deal. And what they actually want is an excuse to have a conflict instead. And I mean, whether it's bad faith or not on, on some level, right, it's you're setting goals that are not realistic, right? I mean, that's yeah. th that's the essence of, of the problem, right? It would American hawks would like is to dictate Iranian foreign policy yeah, to and Iran. And like you just you can't do that. Right. And at the start, you asked me, you know, what's the problem with U.S. foreign policy? And, and if I had to pick sort of one problem with U.S. foreign policy, just one thing, I would say it's hubris. Mm -hmm. It is the idea that we believe that we can do more than we actually can. Um, you know, the idea that our sanctions will force um, Iran not just to capitulate on, say, a point of foreign policy, but to convince their regime to quit and give up, the idea that our sanctions will force Russia to leave Crimea. Um, these are very unrealistic. They show uh, sort of an unwillingness to see that any other country has agency or the ability to decide things for itself, even if it's things we don't like them to decide, right? They have agency. Um, and the viewpoint in Washington, I think, too often is if we just press hard enough, countries will do what we want. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, about Russia, actually, because this has become, I think, a... Uh... A difficult, difficult subject for a lot of people. Um, so, what, what, what sort of happened there from a from a realist point of view over the? I, I don't know. Let's like, can we go back ten years? Like, what's the, what's what's the saga here? Yeah, uh, it's become very difficult to talk about Russia. I'm, I'm a Russian foreign policy specialist myself, and of course now there's domestic politics component that makes it hard to talk right. about. Um, but in terms of the foreign policy aspects, um, our relationship with Russia has not been good basically since the end of the Cold War. It's probably worse now than it has been. Um, but a lot of that has to do with the US during a period where Russia was very weak um, sort of taking a lot of unilateral steps that Russia didn't like. So expanding NATO is typically viewed as the classic one here. Um, but, you know, it, the intervention in Kosovo, for example, a mm -hmm. lot of people forget the Russians were so opposed to that that Boris Yeltsin actually landed paratroopers, Russian paratroopers, to try and prevent the intervention. Mm -hmm. um, so we did a lot of these things in areas where Russia was used to having a lot of influence, a lot of clout. We drove NATO pretty much right up to Russia's borders. And a lot of this drove a perception among the Russian sort of foreign policy elite and political elite that um, there will never be a place for them in Europe's security architecture, that, that Europe is basically opposed to Russia because of America. And so we've kind of set up this conflict where it didn't need to necessarily exist. And I mean, I remember, I think, mostly forgotten in, in the US, but the, the war with Georgia in 2000. Eight, um, where I'm trying to remember this right, um, but so so when the Soviet Union fell apart, right, it sort of dissolved into these constituent republics, initially led by the Baltic republics, which had this kind of independent identity and you know whatever else. Uh, but but a lot of these things, like I don't know, there were internal political divisions of the Soviet Union that didn't necessarily reflect 
like enormous amounts. So then there were parts of Georgia that were trying to secede from Georgia, and then Russia was trying to protect right. So those these were areas. these were long running conflicts. So the two the two zones in in Georgia and Abkhazia and South Ossetia, um, there were zones in Moldova in Transnistria, um, the areas in Ukraine. It's pretty much. Crimea, but the eastern part of Ukraine. And these are all areas that have sort of fairly large proportions of Russian Russian ethnic citizens or Russian language speaking um, people. And some of them had civil wars in the 90s that just sort of metastasized and no one ever solved them. And so in Georgia, that was that was the situation. In 2008, the Russians went in and they said they were protecting the Abkhazians and the South Ossetians from the Georgians. And, you know, at the end of the day, who knows which side the Georgians, the Russians are actually telling the truth about that. Um, but it's not that this was a new conflict. This wasn't just Russia rolling in, suddenly deciding one day they were going to do it. This was Russia... Um, continuing something that had been going on for decades. And it's just like it's suddenly it, – it, it's this very American thing where like for a brief span of time, this was like the most important thing in the world. And John McCain is like talking about we're all Georgians and all the people I knew as like Middle East hawks were like suddenly like they were going on junkets to, to, to Tbilisi and stuff. And I just like – I. I, I don't know. Like, I, I spent some some time living in, in Russia in 1997. I know some Russian people. I don't know that much about foreign policy. But, like, I just know, like, they thought we had gone insane. They didn't expect the pushback that they got, I think. Um, the fact that they did it on basically the last day of the Beijing Olympics, for example. Uh-huh. I think they just didn't expect to get the publicity. Um, but if you look at Georgia, if you look at what they did later in Ukraine, there's also a really rational reason for this, which Mm -hmm. is that by keeping active conflicts going on those territories, Russia made sure that those countries can't join NATO. Mm -hmm. And this was a time when the Bush administration was talking about missile defense in Poland. It was talking about expanding membership action plans for NATO to Georgia and Ukraine. And so this is sort of another one of those places where like alliance politics, Mm -hmm. that the U.S. says, oh, if we have alliances, it makes everything more peaceful and safe around the world. Um, In that situation, it definitely didn't. It probably caused those conflicts. Right. So this is, we can't have Ukraine and Georgia be NATO members as long as they are already in, like, wars with Russia, because then you would have to actually do, like... (laughs) Yeah, you the can. terrifying Article Five thing, right? So it's 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 sort of in Russia's interest to get the conflict going first. Yeah, and you can't have basically you can't have NATO members that have sort of active conflicts on their territory. So mm-hmm. if you go back into like the seventies, you see that the Greeks and the Turks had to resolve Cyprus before they could both join NATO. That right. kind of thing. So it's not a new problem, but in this context, it's one that's effectively unsolvable without Russia agreeing to it. Right, and so and so. This then becomes part of the context for Ukraine later, right, as Russia is trying to establish uh, or maintain like a a sphere of influence, right? They want to be the boss, basically, of like countries that are next to Russia. They want to maintain some influence in the countries around them, is, is how I might put it. But equally, I think they want to be sure that NATO doesn't expand up to the Russian border. They want to make sure that there is some buffer zone oh, but it, there. It has, right? In northern Norway for a small amount of territory. No, but in uh, <laughs> like in Estonia, right? 
Um, yeah, so so very small amounts. Basically, so Ukraine would be a much larger yes. border. That's the, and for military planners, that's the concern. Sure, not sure. really anything else. And so then the the United States kind of like went in on like Ukrainian politics. Right. And without, again, this is one of those situations where we sort of, as outsiders, we looked at it, we applied our own um, mental map to it. We said, oh, this is pro-democracy Ukrainians fighting against evil authoritarian Russians, um, you know, and and this is, you know, they're clearly pro-European. This is a fight we should get involved with. If you've actually studied Ukrainian politics, on the other hand, what you know is that power is basically in a small group of elites at the top. It just goes back and forward between the same two groups over time. One is kind of pro-Russia, one is kind of pro-Europe, but it's really not something that the Ukrainian population as a whole wants. And Ukraine is corrupt and there's lots of problems. But policymakers here in DC didn't really think about those problems or know much about them. They just sort of applied that democracy good map. Right. To it. And I mean, and I think, and I think in a slippery slope kind of situation, right? Like what was actually being like done was not that much. Right. Like I, I think I think this probably looked like an easy thing to sign off on, right? Like we're doing some cheerleading, we're sending a little bit of money. Like it's not a big deal, right? And then the question that's not asked is, well, what do we do if like two steps down the road, there's Russian soldiers in Crimea? Yeah. So something something else that's uh, sort of a problem, I don't know if I have an answer to in U.S. foreign policy, is how our sort of democracy promotion that doesn't happen through the military fits into a lot of this. Because if you look at countries, not just Russia, if you look at countries in the Middle East and elsewhere, you find that quite often the U.S. is backing um you know, pro-democracy activists, um, and then their governments crack down on them. And we often aren't actually there to back them up in that case. So our, our foreign policy can be very contradictory in that sense. Mm -hmm, right. I mean, I guess, like, I mean, in Ukraine, it's not that we didn't back them up exactly. It's that we weren't actually prepared to pay the price to bring Ukraine out of the Russian sphere of influence, right? Like, we would have had to have, like, sent the military. We could have started a nuclear war with right. Russia if we, you know, wanted to actually take it all the way. But, but exactly, and it's so the same situation as Hong Kong today. In the case of Ukraine, you know, we were willing to go a little further because Russia is much weaker. We were willing to do sanctions. We were willing to sort of cut off some some Russian um, companies. We were willing to perhaps, in the case of the Trump administration, send some weaponry to Ukraine, but sort of that far and no further. Mm -hmm, right. um, so this is another one of those situations where our rhetoric doesn't match what we actually end up doing. And I think it ends up costing us in the long run because we're not actually following through. Yeah. And, and I mean, this to me, I mean, not to like... I I, I don't like to go in for, like, incredibly contrarian takes on Russia in the 2016 election because, um, I don't know, it's like America does have its own interests that we need to stand up for. But I think that to a lot of people who, like, just saw, like, WikiLeaks and Trump and Hillary and, like, they're mad um, and they were hoping Robert Mueller would unmask the grand conspiracy, like, don't understand the context that had been taking place over the previous few years there, which was that the United States had gotten pretty, I don't know, we'd, we'd like climbed up on this mountain about Ukraine that I don't think anyone who's really been willing to back up, right? So like we're saying, or we were saying that we could never recognize uh, Russia annexing Crimea. 
and we were going to do sanctions. But like also, like they're not going to leave. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a great book about Ukraine and just the title is Everybody Loses. Uh-huh. And it's basically about how maximalist demands from us and also maximalist demands from the Russians basically split Ukraine when it really didn't need to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, coming back to sort of the point about hubris, that's something we do a lot. And in the context of, say, a rising China, I worry it's something we're going to start doing in Asia a lot more is trying to force countries to choose between us and China. And if we force them into that choice, we might not like what they actually decide. So, so I mean, what what would that look like in a, in an Asian context? I mean, I I feel like I I'm constantly hearing about our like new conflict with China, <laughs> but like what's what what's at stake? You know, so the the new conflict with China is certainly it's it's great power competition, right? It's back. It's the uh-huh. buzzword of the year in DC. That's what everything Tank Pal is about. Um, on the ground, not much has actually changed. It's just that the Trump administration in their national security strategy about a year and a half back um, embraced the idea of great power competition. They basically said, we're pivoting away from the Middle East. We're going to pivot to Asia, as the Obama mm-hmm. administration once said, um, but you know, for real this time, um, and that we're going to focus our attention on, on China. Mm-hmm. Um, and the components of it are really fuzzy. You know, you get a lot of different answers depending on who you ask. So the Trump administration really seems to be focusing on the trade aspect mm-hmm. of it. Um, but the people that are military hawks about this, who think that we should be pushing for more ships in the South China Sea, for example, they're not particularly displeased by the the trade aspect either. You've actually got people at DOD saying, oh, this is great because it inserts some friction in the relationship right. with China. So this is, um, a, a lot of people think that there is a coming clash with China. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're doing now, sort of ramping up hostility, is supposed to somehow help us avoid it. Right. I think most realists or restrainers like me would say that might actually just be driving us towards the conflict instead. And I think this is important because I think a lot of people can mistake um, sort of internal dialogue inside the like aggressive consensus for something else, right? So that like one thing I think you've clearly seen with Trump is a change in the fashions about counterinsurgency. Right. And like that is that is out. It it remains to be seen exactly what will happen in Afghanistan and, and stuff like that. But that whole kind of thinking is on the downswing. And if you don't pay them close attention to this and you just remember Iraq and these other wars, you could be like, aha, we're like stepping away from these endless wars. But in practice, it seems to me it's the ascendancy of, I don't know, like like more hardware focused stuff rather than less, right? Like we're going to have a space force. We're going to have, uh, we're going to have ships on some islands and, and, and we're going to fight China, right? It's not like instead of fighting Afghanistan, we're going to not fight. It's like, we're going to be old school. Yeah. So I, I mean, so I don't even disagree with the idea that I think China is more of a threat to the U.S. than Afghanistan is, right? I would prefer to see us focus more on great power competitors than than on countries like Afghanistan. Um, but I think you're right that attention is shifting away and it's almost like we found something new to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, where I would challenge that is the rhetoric and the reality don't actually match one another. Mm-hmm. So even as the DOD is sort of being asked to ramp up spending on stuff focused on China, as they're being asked to focus 
focus specifically on Asia, we're still spending a lot of money, not just in Iraq and Afghanistan, but in all these rising conflicts on the African continent, um, in places like Syria where mo- or Libya, where most people don't even know we really have troops. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually a, a pivot in reality. Mm-hmm. It's mostly just we're adding something new and expecting the military to do it all. But isn't this sort of related, right? I mean, part of the the Cold War was a sense that if there was a conflict anywhere, it was like we had to pick a side because otherwise the Soviets would pick a side and their side would win and we would lose, right? So, I mean, part of a great power competition with China is precisely like getting involved in random things everywhere so the Chinese don't get there first. That might be true if the conflicts we were involved in were ones that China cared about or wanted to to get involved in. But it's mostly not. It's actually mostly the U.S. going into places and fighting, you know, typical jihadi insurgencies mm-hmm. in a lot of places. The Chinese have shown really no interest in doing any of that. Uh-huh. Um, they have also shown no interest, for example, in protecting like the sea lanes in the Middle East, even though the vast majority of, of oil from the Middle East now goes to China. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. is still providing all that security. So in a lot of these cases, what we're doing is actually more substantive for things that China might actually have to spend on if we weren't doing it. Didn't Trump tweet about that? He actually did. and, and you Complaining know, about his own policy? You know, Trump is like a stopped clock, right? He's right twice a day. He's right on NATO spending. He's right that the Chinese free ride on American military power in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't mean I agree with any of his solutions, um, but he's getting the problems right, right. sometimes. Well, so actually, what, I mean, what would you do about that? This is a, a, one of these bizarre things where the president of the United States tweets as if he is um, just like an old guy watching cable. And so he is observing that, the U.S. military presence in uh, the, uh, the the Straits by Iran is helping facilitate oil exports that are mostly going to China, and that China is not doing anything to help this. Um, I mean, I don't know. Like, he, he's the president. He could try to do something about that. He could. And so, I mean, the problem with Trump, right, is he is just a, a guy watching television, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't actually try and solve the problems. But I think the fact that he's good at diagnosing the problems sometimes is because he's basically coming to this with no background in it, no expertise. He is just looking at reality as it is now. And rather than trying to twist himself in knots and say, well, we have to be there because of power projection, we have to be there because the US is indispensable. He's just saying, oh, that's ridiculous. We should do something about it. Yeah, because I think if I got somebody in here, I think if I got like a like a Bush administration veteran, they would tell you that we have to let the Chinese free ride on American security in the shipping lane because if we withdraw, then China will have to do it, which will project their power into the region and weaken us. So for the sake of the whole security architecture, it's like it's actually good that we take care of this problem for them. And in the long run, maybe 50 years, they might be right about Chinese power projection. Um, But I, I think I would question whether we actually even need to be protecting the Middle Eastern oil lanes if it's mostly going to China. If the Chinese are protecting it and the world market is secure, it's hard for me to see how the U.S. loses out of that. And when you add into that the fact the Chinese are increasingly concerned that the U.S. control of the sea lanes might be a security problem for them, mm-hmm. it kind of seems like a no-brainer to let them take on a little more responsibility. So, so like, what would you do, literally? Just like, should we tell the ships to sail away and, you know— call President Xi and say, over to you, man. 
<laughs> so um, that's this kind of question restrainers get a lot is like, so you're just going to drop everything tomorrow. Um, and I, no, I wouldn't drop everything tomorrow, but there are ways to gradually implement these changes. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of sea lanes in the Middle East, gradually dialing back US presence um, and encouraging things like the Chinese have been pretty involved in some of the anti-piracy stuff off of Djibouti, for example, mm -hmm. encouraging that sort of international multilateral approach to this could be could be quite fruitful mm -hmm. um, in terms of things like NATO burden sharing, right? A 10-year program that sees the US withdraw most of the remaining troops from Europe and encouraging European allies to up their spending, but with the understanding that they have to do it because we are leaving at the end of 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of more gradual approach, I think, could really work. Right. So, I mean, so this NATO issue, which has now been roiling, like, I feel like since the dawn of time, right? This is um, the European NATO countries don't spend that much on their military, particularly Germany, which is a really big country, um, spends spends less than than two percent of GDP. And every American president like yells at them about this, and then they keep doing their same old thing, and we keep doing our same old thing. And there seems to be, I, Trump like yells louder. Um, you know, actually, Trump claims, in fact, that his yelling has encouraged the Europeans to spend more on this. Mm -hmm. But if you actually look at when the spending increases started, it was basically the exact time the Russians went into Crimea. Right. So it's actually driven by European sense of threat. Um, and the spending is concentrated in the countries like Poland or the Baltics that feel threat, not in countries like Germany that don't actually see a threat. Um, but I mean, the fact that you're, uh, American policymakers have been yelling about this since you go back to Truman and he says mm -hmm. the Europeans aren't spending enough. I see that just as proof that we need to actually take concrete steps to dial back what we're doing, because as long as it is free and it is there to protect them, European states aren't going to step up their spending. So this is what I always wonder is, you know, if we did start moving out of, of Europe, would European countries increase military spending? Or is the like is German military spending low because Germany does not, in fact, face a lot of military threats? And like, that's the big question, isn't it? I mean, it really, it really is. Are they going to actually increase their spending? Um, and I am not so concerned if they don't. Right. Because I think that they, if they don't see a threat from it, why do we see a threat to them? I agree. I, I, I always want the Europeans to almost like yell back and just be like, look, it's fine. Like, maybe you should spend less. So part of the problem is that NATO has got so big and unwieldy that all the members now have different security interests, mm -hmm. right? So the Poles and the Baltic states have very different interests than, say, Turkey in the mm -hmm. south. They have very different security interests than the Western European states. The reason none of the NATO states agree on spending levels is because they just don't face the same threats. Well, and this is, I mean, the big paradox of NATO, right? Because NATO was obviously formed as an anti-Soviet military alliance so that the United States could, like, coordinate and lead an anti-Soviet military coalition. And so then in 1989, 1991, like, we don't dissolve this alliance. And we keep saying it's like it's about something else now. Uh, but clearly, from the perspective of like Poland or Latvia, like it's not about something different, right? Um, these are countries that, with a good reason, uh, fear falling under Russian influence. Uh, they spend more on their military than Western European countries because they feel that they are threatened, and they want like they want like good old fashioned NATO. 
Yeah, and they joined in in many ways specifically because they wanted a security guarantee against Russia. At the same time as American politicians were were telling Russia, maybe you can join someday. This isn't about excluding you from the European security architecture. Um, but I mean, it really just I think highlights the broader problem of, of permanent alliances that persist past the the threat that they were meant to deal with. Mm-hmm, right. um, and you know, NATO really is just the most egregious example. If it's going to survive and if it's going to actually be useful for anything in the future, NATO is going to have to be reshaped in some way. It's going to have to start talking about different security problems. It's going to have to shrink. It's going to have to regionalize in some way so it's not just one big block. I see. I don't really see any way that NATO as it is now persists as a coherent functional alliance going forward. But that seems like a big change. It does. Um, and I think there's a real tendency among foreign policy thinkers to sort of go with just the path dependence argument, right? Mm-hmm. We are we need to protect NATO because we've always been in NATO and we helped to create NATO. Um, very little thought about um, what NATO is actually meant to do today. So it's, it's just it's the March of Dimes problem, right? The uh-huh. organization solved the problem it was meant to solve, and now we're going to find a new purpose for it. And in 25 to 30 years, American policymakers, European policymakers haven't really succeeded in finding that new purpose for NATO. And here I feel like the problem is nobody, at least in in American politics, um, probably even more so elsewhere, it's like nobody really wants to be like a foreign policy president. They, They all wind up doing this, but it's like it would be so controversial to say we are going to not have NATO anymore or to say, well, we're going to have a 10-year phase out and like a long series of meetings about creating some kind of European security, you know, so not like just gone tomorrow, but like this is a big deal. We want to make a fundamental big change that will make a lot of people upset, right? You save that like for your healthcare plan. You know, I I think this is one area where I actually give Donald Trump some credit because mm-hmm. the things that he has been willing to say, not just on NATO spending, but on Iraq and, and other cases, he's been willing to sort of break the the, the bounds of convention and what we're willing to say about foreign mm-hmm. policy. Now, someone else is going to have to come in and sweep it up and fix it. <laughs> um, but the fact that we're actually talking about these issues right now, I think, is is good. And so he has, to some extent, been that force of creative destruction in the foreign policy debate. And so what I'm watching now is the the 2020 candidates, particularly on the Democratic side of the aisle, and how they're suggesting picking up the pieces and moving forward. Okay, so, uh, well, we, we don't have a, a, a ton of time, but have you seen anything from, from 2020 Democrats that seems uh, impressive or wildly misguided? You know, a, a couple of them have put out some quite detailed foreign policy plans. Sanders, mm-hmm. Warren um, in particular, Pete Buttigieg has been talking more and more about foreign policy. And some, like Kamala Harris, have basically been just avoiding talking about it uh, altogether. Sure. Um, but there are definitely some commonalities. Um, they all pretty much agree on getting rid of the 2001 AUMF. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the authorization to use military force in Afghanistan and against other sort of terror groups. They all pretty much agree on pulling back from a lot of the war and terror mm-hmm. conflicts. Um, they don't agree on a lot of other things, particularly the role of trade um, and whether foreign policy should primar- should be about domestic policy or whether it should mostly be about foreign policy itself. So, right. I, I mean, I think really it's going to end up coming down to who actually makes it to sort of the final stages of right. this process. And so the, the AUMF in this context, I think, would be a sort of a token of wanting to not be as profligately 
involved, these many, we've referenced a few times, many like small scale military interventions where there's like some jihadists here, there, and, and wherever, right? That's all fallen under this AUMF umbrella. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of other authorities they can use for this stuff, like train and equip and, and various mm-hmm. other sort of small codes that they can use for this stuff. But the 2001 AUMF is sort of extraordinarily permissive in what it lets the president do in, in terms of using military force abroad. And so the fact, I think, that a lot of Democrats are saying they want to repeal that is it's a good sign because it suggests that they're saying – I don't want to use military force as much or as frequently. Right. And it was a way of sort of signaling to the military, right? Like we are we are telling you to like think about this in a different way. And of signaling skepticism of the use of force and what it can get us. And if, if I had to characterize most of the democratic field at this point, I would say that that's the key characteristic is a skepticism about the use of force and what it actually gets us in foreign policy. All right. So uh, before I let you go, uh, what, what what else what else should I have asked you about? I think we've covered a lot of ground so far. <laughs> the whole wide world. Okay. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Emma Ashford, uh, Research Fellow in Foreign and Defense Policy at the Cato Institute. Um, fantastic. Oh, I also want to mention uh, there will be a Weeds Live on September 10th in Seattle. Uh, if you live in Seattle or somewhere near Seattle or just anywhere in the northwestern part of the United States, uh, you should check it out. It's at townhallseattle.org. Uh, tickets are just $10. It's going to be super fun. I uh, hope to see you all there. Uh, so with that, um, thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld, as always. Uh, thanks to Bert Pinkerton for helping out with this recording. Thank you, Emma. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.